of mourning, the reading is Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. This is the word of the Lord. Great. Thank you very much, Jean. Thanks, Mark. Uh, Please do keep uh, your finger in that part of the Bible in Psalm 24. We'll be looking at it this morning together. Uh, Before we get there, though, I think we've missed something in our order of service this morning. There's a video from the Handerside family. Uh, please do keep praying for these guys. As Mark said earlier, there's a, there's a few prayer points in the outline uh, for the service today. Please keep these guys in your prayers. Uh, you can hop onto Facebook as well. They've got a Facebook group called Handicides and Helicopters. If you want to get an update of what's going on there, it's a huge privilege we have to partner together with them in their ministry in Papua New Guinea. And I understand they'll be back in October to spend some time with us again. So we look forward to that. Please do open your Bibles to Psalm 24, if you haven't already. We'll be there now. That passage Jean read for us earlier. Before we uh, spend some time in that passage, let me pray for us. Father God, we just saw on the screen these words, that as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, So shall your word be that goes out from your mouth. It shall not return to you empty, but it shall accomplish that which you purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which you sent it. Our God, this morning we pray that you would indeed do so through your word in Psalm 24. Speak to us and do not let your word return without accomplishing in us that which you will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I stood there sweating, exhausted, frustrated, and sore. My lawnmower just wouldn't start. I'm sure my experience is not unusual. I must have pulled on the starter cord about 20 times. I tried pulling really hard. I tried going for the smoothest pull I could manage. I've taken out the spark plug. I've looked at it and put it back. I'm not great with mechanics. Sometimes it sounds like it might be turning over, but then it stops with that plunk that tells me nothing's happening. I'm tired, I'm sore, I've got a niggling feeling that I might have done something to my back. 
and still my mower won't start. I wonder if you've ever had that experience. Yes, everyone's going, oh, yes, that's right. It's great when you know you're preaching to people who can understand what you're talking about. I wonder, though, if you've ever felt that way about coming to church, though. I don't, don't mean about your mower, but I mean about your heart. But when you come into church on a Sunday morning, it's like the heart won't start. We arrive at church a few minutes before 8.30 after a late Saturday night, and look, I'm glad to see so many who are at the wedding here today. That's great. We struggle to get out of bed on a Sunday morning. We throw breakfast down our throats. We throw our clothes on. There's all the stress of getting the family ready. And then we deal with frustrating Sunday drivers on the road and cyclists. But then the Bible readings, the prayers, the songs, the encouragements from others, brothers and sisters in Christ, maybe even the sermon, they leave us cold as they hopelessly pull on the starter cord of our hearts, which just fail to spark and stubbornly fail to return to turn over. You know, it did take me a while, but I, I worked out what was wrong with my mower. As I said, I'm not great in mechanics. Eventually, I looked in the fuel tank. Fumes. In fact, less than fumes. And not only that, but the fuel valve was closed. So even if my mower had been full of fuel, it still wouldn't have worked. You see, my mower simply wasn't ready to start. And perhaps the reason our hearts might be cold as we come into church on a Sunday morning is that we're simply not ready to sing, not ready to pray, not ready to hear God's word proclaimed to us in the sermon and through his people. We're not actually prepared. Now, this is not to excuse weak or unprepared service leading or unrehearsed musicians or boring and unengaging preachers, but perhaps the right response to that, to I didn't get anything out of church today, is actually to ask the question, well, how much was I prepared to put in? So I want to talk to you this morning from Psalm 24 about preparing our hearts for worship. The book of Psalms in the Bible is really the songbook or the the worship manual of God's Old Testament people. And it gives us a window into the hearts of real people in their relationship with God, and quite often warts and all. The book of Psalms is, uh, many of the Psalms in the book are written by King David. This one is one of those. It says at the top, a Psalm of David. And in many ways, it's an invitation to approach God with a prepared heart. Scholars believe the most likely occasion for the writing of this Psalm was when David brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem in 2 Samuel 6 and recorded as well in 1 Chronicles 16. Clearly, it's a reflection on approaching the true God. For this reason, I think it gives us three important ways we can prepare our hearts for meeting God in worship. When we come to church, and actually whenever we come before God. We're going to cover the psalm under three headings this morning. I hope you've got the service outline with you. You'll find the outline there. And I'll also have the headings up on the screen Just a note, we can't say for certain what the word selah means in verse 6 and verse 10, but they're probably musical directions of some sort. I like to think that perhaps it's a direction for a guitar solo, but that's just me. Well, our first heading there is in verse 1 and 2, and it's an encouragement to look around. 
The psalmist begins his song by making a statement of fact about where God fits in the world that he has made. Have a look with me there at verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Where does God fit in his creation? Well, he's, he's at the very top. He fits over it all. It's all his because he made it. Even the people who live in the world, you and I, and countless others, belong to the Lord because he made us. Saying that the Lord has founded upon the seas, it's meant to make us think back to Genesis chapter 1 and the way God created the world. Of course, we can only know God savingly in Christ through his word, the Bible. And we rightly want to avoid any sort of New Age pantheism or, or pagan animism uh, where God is in the trees and in the rocks and in the wind. But, but the Bible is clear that God is also known, revealed, in the world that he has made. If not to salvation, he is at least revealed clearly. So, Romans chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. If this is true, friends, Christians should take every opportunity to know God in the world that he has made. And these verses from Romans 1 tell us, if nothing else, that we can know what a great God he is just by looking at creation. His creation shows us that he is powerful, shows us that he is wise, that he is wonderfully created, that he is kind and that he's generous. How do you think it would prepare your heart to worship God? you spent just 15 minutes, maybe on a Saturday afternoon or early on a Sunday morning, you just go outside and behold God in the world that he's made. It might be in your backyard, it might be down at the beach, it might be on a walking trail. What difference do you think it would make to your worship of God to see his greatness reflected in the sky or in the sea? to see his limitless creativity in the trees he's made, or in the birds, or in the bugs, to see his sustaining grace in the rhythm of seasons and weather and day and night, to know his power in the storm, to see his mercy in the light of a new day, to know that his presence is not confined to the inside of a church building, but he's everywhere even to see his kindness to you in the material blessings, those things of his creation that he has given to you as a gift. To realize once more that God made you and you are his. You know, we live in a truly beautiful corner of God's world here on the Sunshine Coast, where I think we can even use the journey to church to prepare ourselves for meeting with the God who made this beautiful creation. 
It's easy to move from the distracting screen and its virtual world to the sealed bubbles of our cars, to the inside of this building, forgetting that God is in the world outside. I think those who live close enough to walk to church have a unique opportunity to do this. But for those who drive, maybe it's, it's worth taking the time to take the scenic route to church on a Sunday morning. Maybe turn off the news or the music or the podcast, open the windows, and notice the world that God has made. On my drive to church, I get to drive down beautiful green tree-lined streets over a, uh, a couple of gently babbling creeks and past a mob of kangaroos, usually at the top of Stringy Bark Road. And, you know, it would do my heart a world of good if I learned to notice God in the world that he has made on my way to worship him. Noticing God in the world he's made and sustains prepares us to appreciate his greatness. Well, point number two, we see there in verse three to six, where the songwriter moves from looking around to looking inside. He says there in verse 3, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Now, I think this is far more confronting than looking at the world outside. It's wonderful to look at the world outside. It's often not so wonderful to look at the world inside. Here we're encouraged to look inside, to look at our own hearts, and consider whether or not our lives are in the best state to meet with God. Now, at first glance, it might seem that the songwriter is only saying that uh, only the perfect are worthy to meet with God. After all, isn't that the the answer to verse 4's rhetorical question? Who gets to approach God in his holy place? Only someone who is worthy. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, does not swear deceitfully. The problem is, if we're honest with ourselves, we don't qualify. Our hands are soiled with the guilt of our own sin. And our hearts, well, we we love what we shouldn't love, and we don't love what we should love. Our hearts certainly aren't pure, they're polluted. We do lift up our souls to what is false. We desperately chase purpose and meaning in money, careers, power over others, relationships, uh, causes, likes on social media posts. We do swear deceitfully, kidding ourselves that all of this isn't true. You know, recognizing this about ourselves is actually part of preparing our hearts to meet God. It's not fun, it's not comfortable, but it's necessary to appreciate just what God is able to do with our sin. Because in verse 5, we're reminded that the qualification to approach God, righteousness, it doesn't come from us, from our hands, from our hearts, from our souls. It comes from God himself. A God who is able to be the God of our salvation for those who seek him. He washes dirty hands clean. 
He makes polluted hearts pure. He gives us truth towards which we can lift up our souls. Friends, this is the message of the gospel. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ came to do for us. Through his cross, he paid the price for our sins and rose again as a guarantee of that full and free forgiveness we can have by trusting him. And you know, if we, if we appreciate just what Jesus has done for us, we will keep coming back to his cross, not for salvation, because that's been bought, but for more and more grace as we learn to live this side of heaven as those who are being prepared for heaven. So the New Testament writer to the Hebrews says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, there's, there's nothing like realizing how sick you are to make you want and appreciate the medicine. Whether it's the throbbing pain in your tooth that finally gets you to the dentist's chair, or the, uh, the persistent pain in your chest that finally gets you to the cardiologist to schedule that bypass. We usually have to recognize just how much we need the help before we're willing to accept it and appreciate it. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul reminds the Christians he's writing to just how, how critical it is that they examine themselves before they take part in the, the holy fellowship of the Lord's Supper. In another part of the Psalms, David pens these lines. I think they're some of the scariest prayers in the Bible. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting a scary prayer to pray because we're scared of what God might find. But notice that David doesn't pray this prayer so that he's going to be undone. He prays it so that he can be led by God, unencumbered forever. He's asking God to expose and remove any of those things which are going to stand between him and his relationship with his God. What difference would it make if we came to church having first spent time praying and reflecting and examining our hearts, preparing our heart by asking God to expose the sin that needs his grace applied to. Considering perhaps whether our thoughts, our words, our actions, or our inactions of the past week are really those of a person who belongs to Jesus. It's not meant to drive us towards some kind of morbid introspection, rather meant to drive us towards the cross, towards an appreciation of what Jesus has done for us, the lengths that he has gone to save us, and the, the grace that he continues to generously provide for us. If we're conscious of the state of our hearts and our need of grace when we walked in here on a Sunday morning, what difference might it make? At the very least, we might find ourselves just more alert to the good news of the gospel and the, and the readings and the prayers and the leading, eager to be reminded of God's grace in Jesus because we know how much we need it, pricking up our ears at any mention of our Lord and Savior.
and what he's done for us. The forgiveness he purchased for us on the cross, the certainty of our place in heaven, despite our sinfulness and unworthiness. We might sing with more joy, more sincerity, my great Redeemer's praise, because we know that he is actually our great Redeemer. Noticing the state of our hearts, friends, prepares us to appreciate the gospel. Well, thirdly and finally, uh, verse 7 to 10, there the psalm writer encourages us to prepare our hearts by looking forward. So look with me at verse 7. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. These are the words we began our service with today. I appreciate Mark picking them. You've got to know here that ancient cities were protected by massive walls, and in the walls there were usually huge gates which were guarded, especially in wartime. Anyone approaching the gates would be challenged, sort of, you know, who goes there? And they'd have to announce who they are and what their business is. Even a victorious king returning to his own city would have to do the same. Of course, he deserved to go in, and it was more a proclamation of his victory and his right to enter the city as king. And that's kind of the image that David's using here. It's uh, an experience he himself might have even had as he walked into Jerusalem after he'd conquered it. But it's an opportunity to turn our attention to the king of glory in victory and rightful reign. But it's no military victory that's in view here. Instead, we're called here to recognize the victorious God himself coming to his own as king. Some other Bibles might not have God of hosts. It might say the Lord Almighty. Really what this is, is a forward-looking expectation that's brought to reality in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because at the cross and the empty tomb, Jesus, God the Son, defeated the greatest of enemies, sin, death, and the devil. And he has promised to return as God's rightful king to rule and reign over God's people in his kingdom forever. It's a day that Christians should look forward to. Because on that day, our faith will become science. Our longings will become realities. Our salvation will be complete. Our sin will be no more. Everything that's broken will be made whole again. And we will be home. So the Bible reminds us in Philippians chapter 3, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior. Jesus the Lord who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. As Jesus' people gather to pray and praise and proclaim his name now, eager for his return, if we have eyes to see it, we'll notice the future breaking into the present. What difference would it make if we came to church 
prepared with a longing for Jesus to return, recognizing the need for him to return, that now isn't, that we haven't arrived. What if we recognize as we came into church that this is not our home, but that we're waiting for a Savior to come and take us home? And that in some ways, church is the closest we can get to that right now. Perhaps being in church, worshiping Jesus together, would be the highlight of our week that it ought to be. And it would especially be the place where we want to be when we know that everything's not right in the world, that things around us are broken and messy, because we desperately want to see that day when Jesus makes everything new. I'm sure you have as well, but I've, I've been in church services where it's felt like Jesus would return at any moment. Some of those services were on youth camps with hundreds of teenagers. Some were in 12th century church buildings with organ music and hundreds of people singing. Some of those services were standing on a sand floor in a shack church in a shantytown. It had nothing to do with the music. It had nothing to do with the personalities of those up front. It was simply a sense of who the Lord Jesus Christ is and what we have to look forward to in him. Noticing who Jesus is and what we have to look forward to in him prepares us to worship him now. 